Welcome to the International Trade Minute, quickfire trade news where time is trade. We are your go-to podcast for rapid and concise updates on trade and law, designed specifically for busy trade professionals. Sponsored by Rydal Law Firm and prepared by seasoned trade attorneys, our twice-weekly podcast packages your essential trade updates, all in the time it takes to enjoy your coffee break. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, and join the conversation with a network of like-minded professionals on LinkedIn. Where time is trade, make every minute count. In today's episode, we're unpacking some of the most pressing issues at the intersection of commerce, human rights, and legal entanglements. Let's get started. For today's first story, we take a deep dive into a concerning revelation in the seafood industry, shedding light on how our fish may be linked to China's forced labor practices. Early this year, a labor transfer program was spotted in Kashgar, a city in Xinjiang, China, where more than 80 Uyghurs, one of China's largest ethnic minorities, stood in lines ready to board a train. They were being sent away to work in industries across China. As recent investigations reveal, this includes processing much of the seafood exported to America and Europe. As per a story in collaboration with The New Yorker, these labor transfers aren't just economic incentives, but are part of China's broader strategy of control, assimilation, and elimination of the Uyghur culture. Xinjiang, where Uyghurs predominantly reside, has long been a hotspot for ethnic tensions. And in recent years, the Chinese government's crackdown on the Uyghur population has intensified. The numbers are quite alarming. Between 2014 and 2019, Chinese authorities relocated more than 10% of Xinjiang's population through these labor transfers. That's over 2.5 million people. And it's not just about the numbers. There's a concerning lack of transparency about the conditions in which these workers are employed. Julie Millsap, from the Eager Human Rights Project, noted that the state seems to orchestrate and restrict all aspects of Uyghurs' lives. Despite this, China's official stance is that allegations of forced labor are just lies propagated against them. As consumers, we are more connected to this than we might realize. The U.S. imports roughly 80% of its seafood, with China being the primary supplier. Despite measures taken in 2021, where the U.S. passed the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which effectively bans goods produced by forced labor from entering the U.S., the seafood industry has largely gone unnoticed. The supply chain complexities in the seafood industry make it difficult to trace the origin of seafood. The seafood processing hub, Shandong Province, which is located over a thousand miles away from Xinjiang, might have played a part in evading scrutiny. And what's concerning is that Thousands of Uyghurs have reportedly been sent to work in seafood processing factories in Shandong since 2018. Last February, thousands of Uyghurs were reportedly taken to a so-called job fair next to an internment camp in Xinjiang. The result? They became part of the country's vast labor force. Videos and pictures have emerged of these individuals boarding chartered flights with red celebratory flowers pinned to their jackets. And it's not just about recruiting. Major seafood companies like the Chishan Group reportedly met with party officials to discuss how to find additional labor. These interactions suggest a tight relationship between private corporations and state officials. And these aren't isolated incidents. Chishan's corporate communications have even indicated their anticipation for migrant workers from Xinjiang. One must wonder, are these workers coming willingly? That's the pressing question. Inside these factories, conditions are tough. Described as semi-military-style management, The lives of these workers from Xinjiang are heavily monitored, from their dormitories to the factory floors. 
Add to this reports of personal searches where items like the Quran can lead to severe consequences, such as being sent to a re-education camp. It's no wonder Chishan has labeled the management of these workers as a major source of risk. Now, while some factories try to ease the transition with special canteens and festive events, the overall picture isn't rosy. Eyewitnesses and former workers paint a disturbing image, limited freedom, stringent regulations, and in extreme cases, even torture. The voices of the Uyghurs still echo. Some take to social media, posting selfies by the ocean, a symbolic gesture considering Xinjiang's landlocked nature. Others upload songs with sorrowful lyrics, which some experts argue might be subtle messages of suffering. And then there are those who are a little more direct, revealing their plight through posts like waking up at 5.30 every morning, non-stop work, and the never-ending sharpening of knives and gutting of fish. It's heartbreaking, especially when you consider the complexities of seafood supply chains. They're notoriously tough to penetrate, making it difficult for international watchdogs to gain full visibility. So, what about social audits? These are often conducted to ensure compliance with labor standards. But Scott Nova, the executive director of the Worker Rights Consortium, points out a fundamental flaw. These audits aren't designed to detect state-imposed forced labor. And even if they were, there are hurdles. Many audits are announced beforehand, giving factories a chance to conceal minority workers. Interviews are conducted, but the fear of retribution makes workers hesitant to speak candidly. And when these audits don't capture the full picture, it paves the way for companies, including you. S Enterprises to continue working with these suppliers under the guise of compliance. Recent investigations have revealed that eager forced labor might be behind some of the world's most consumed seafood. From cod to salmon, from shrimp to crab, there's a chance that the seafood on your plate has been processed by an oppressed minority in China. The auditors, including those from globally recognized firms, often missed these glaring issues. For instance, half the Chinese exporters identified as tied to Iger labor had previously passed global inspections. Disturbingly, many of these seafood plants were even certified by the Marine Stewardship Council, and that's a concern. These audits and certifications give consumers a false sense of security. We've seen this before, like in the garment industry in South Asia, where social audits missed rampant sexual abuse cases. The system, as it stands, is flawed. The aftermath? Thousands of tons of seafood from these factories have made their way into major U.S. and Canadian retail chains. Walmart, Costco, Kroger, Albertsons, they've all possibly been recipients. And it's not just a North American issue. The ripple effect is global. Importers with ties to Iger labor supply the largest fish processing factory in the world in Germany. This seafood ends up in grocery chains across Europe. Next, we dive into a recent court ruling that might reshape how we define importers in the realm of international trade, particularly when it comes to assessing excise taxes. It's all about a case from Texas where the key question revolved around who the actual importer was. Was it the wholesaler, Texas truck parts, an amp tire, or the Chinese manufacturer? To give some context, the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Texas was to determine if Texas truck parts and amp tire was properly assessed an excise tax on taxable tires. Now the IRS imposes this tax on tires sold by the manufacturer, producer, or importer at a rate of nine, 45 cents for every 10 pounds. The big twist here is Texas truck claimed they were neither the manufacturer nor the producer and hence shouldn't be seen as the importer. But the U.S. government begged to differ and they argued that Texas truck is the importer. Their defense, well, the Treasury Department's definition of an importer as 
any person who brings an article into the U.S. from outside or withdraws it from a customs-bonded warehouse for sale or use in the U.S. What's interesting here is how Judge Charles Eskridge approached the case. He began by noting two points in favor of Texas Truck. Firstly, they weren't listed as the importer of record on CBP forms. And secondly, an annual import spreadsheet maintained by the Treasury showed the importer to be the Chinese manufacturers, not Texas Truck. Eskridge emphasized the lack of alignment between the IRS and CBP, questioning why the IRS would reject the designation of importer of record on CBP forms, even though they relied on those forms to impose taxes. But here's where it gets more intricate. Eskridge turned to dictionary definitions to unravel the term importer. What does it mean to be an importer, and what does it mean to bring goods into a country? And after diving deep into the semantics, Eskridge concluded that an importer is essentially someone whose business revolves around the act of physically bringing in goods from abroad. The term bring here is critical. It implies the act of moving a tangible item from one place to another. So the final verdict? Since Texas Truck didn't physically move the tires into the U.S., they are not the importer. In this particular case, it's the Chinese manufacturers. And this could be a game changer. This case sets a precedent on how importers are defined, especially when it comes to assessing excise taxes. It underscores the importance of the physical movement of goods in defining who the real importer is. For businesses engaged in international trade, this is certainly one to watch. It might reshape strategies, roles, and responsibilities in the importing process. On to our next story, we look into a House bill that could have significant implications for U.S. businesses operating in China. The Chinese Military and Surveillance Company Sanctions Act is causing ripples in the international trade community. Advanced by the House Financial Services Committee last month, the bill might compel the administration to review whether sanctions should be levied on Chinese firms that are featured on a range of government blacklists, from the Defense Department's list to the Commerce Department's entity list. William Reinch, once a high-ranking official with the Commerce Department and now the Skoll Chair in International Business at CSIS, expressed strong reservations. He commented that this could be likened to deploying an economic nuclear option against firms that haven't necessarily merited such drastic measures. Reinch notably highlighted three massive telecom companies in China, China Mobile Communications Group, China Unicom, and China Telecom Corporation. All these entities would be in the firing line if this bill progresses. And the consequences? If these companies find themselves on the Treasury Department's specially designated nationals list, it could hamstring U.S. businesses in China. Americans and U.S. companies would find themselves unable to contract with these entities or their subsidiaries. Think about it. No telecommunication services from the major providers in the country. It goes beyond that. U.S. manufacturers could find themselves shut out of the Chinese market if their chip-containing products aren't certified. This would include a vast array of goods, from smartphones to cars to even household appliances connected to the IoT. Reinch, however, does emphasize one crucial point. The bill doesn't necessarily mandate sanctions. It simply requires the administration to consider them. Proponents of the bill trust that the Treasury will act judiciously. But, as Reinch pointed out, what guarantees are there in a different administration? Reinch's sentiments on this bill represent broader concerns. A perceived rise in anti-China proposals fueled by what Reinch calls paranoia is evident. He mentions a slew of bills barring Chinese entities from acquiring U.S. farmland. But the twist? The U.S. government already possesses the tools to prevent such acquisitions if deemed a national security threat via the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. or CFIUS. And speaking of CFIUS, they're feeling the heat. 
Congressional pressure is mounting for the committee to take a more proactive stance on U.S. land acquisitions by foreign buyers, especially from nations labeled as foreign adversaries. This all paints a picture of a trade and international relations landscape that's evolving rapidly. One thing's for sure, the implications of such decisions, if ratified, will be profound and will be felt by businesses, consumers, and diplomatic relations alike. Last but not the least, this story delves into the murky world of customs brokerage and potential deceit. We're diving deep into the recent arrest of Frank Seung Noah, a California-based customs broker. Quite the controversy has erupted around his alleged activities, especially as he was under scrutiny for prior charges. Let's break it down. Noah was in charge of Comus International, a logistics company that provided customs brokerage services. Between 2007 and 2019, the firm served as a broker for Japan's variety store, Daiso. But here's where things took a twist. Noah allegedly sent Daiso invoices that inflated the customs duties he'd paid on their behalf to the Customs and Border Protection, or CBP. What makes this even more intriguing is that this isn't the first time Noah has been caught in the crosshairs of the U. Attorney's Office. In February 2022, he was charged with pilfering nearly $3, $4 million from Daiso. And that's not all. He was also indicted for evading $1, million in personal income taxes. While on bond for these charges, Noah, it seems, couldn't resist old habits. The U.S. Attorney's Office has accused him of defrauding two more client companies from late 2021 until June this year. Instead of paying the customs duties to CBP, he pocketed the funds and even went so far as to send these companies fake bank statements when suspicions arose. The real shocker here? Even after all these charges and while awaiting trial, Noah is again free on bond. However, there are some pretty stringent conditions this time around, including home detention and a strict ban on performing customs brokerage services. Additionally, he's nearly cut off from the digital world with restricted access to email and the internet. Quite the fall from grace for a once prominent figure in the customs brokerage sector. If found guilty, the stakes are high. We're talking about a potential five-year sentence for tax evasion and a staggering 20 years for each wire fraud count. Cases like these highlight the importance of trust and accountability in the international trade industry. It's a reminder for businesses everywhere to ensure due diligence when partnering with brokers or any service providers for that matter. Thank you for joining us on International Trade Minute your rapid source of trade updates for busy trade professionals. And we hope to have you back for our next episode. Don't forget to subscribe.